0: Hello everybody, and welcome back to 1001 Stories for the Road, Chapter 7, King Solomon's Mines, by H. Ryder Haggard. We're in the middle of Chapter 7, Solomon's Road. By midday we had advanced sufficiently far down the mountain to reach the region where wood was to be met with. First we came to scattered bushes which grew more and more frequent, till at last we found the road winding through a vast grove of silver trees. "'similar to those which are to be seen on the slopes of Table Mountain at Cape Town. "'I had never before met with them in all my wanderings except at the Cape, "'and their appearance here astonished me greatly.' "'Ah!' said Good, surveying these shining-leaved trees with evident enthusiasm. "'Here's lots of wood. Let us stop and cook some dinner. "'I have about digested that raw meat.' Nobody objected to this, so leaving the road, we made our way to a stream which was babbling away not far off, and soon had a goodly fire of dry boughs blazing. Cutting off some substantial hunks from the flesh of the Inko which we had brought with us, we proceeded to toast them on the end of sharp sticks, as one sees the Kaffirs do, and ate them with relish. After filling ourselves, we lit our pipes and gave ourselves up to enjoyment, which, compared to the hardships we had recently undergone, "'seemed almost heavenly. "'The brook of which the banks were clothed "'with dense masses of a gigantic species of maidenhair fern "'interspersed with feathery tufts of wild asparagus "'babbled away merrily at our side. "'The soft air murmured through the leaves of the silver trees. "'Doves cooed around, "'and bright-winged birds flashed like living gems "'from bough to bough. "'It was like paradise.'" The magic of the place, combined with the overwhelming sense of dangers left behind, and of the promised land reached at last, seemed to charm us into silence. Sir Henry and Umbopa sat conversing in a mixture of broken English and kitchen Zulu in a low voice, but earnestly enough, and I lay with my eyes half shut upon that fragrant bed of fern and watched them. Presently I missed good, and looked to see what had become of him. As I did so, I observed him sitting by the bank of the stream in which he had been bathing. He had nothing on but his flannel shirt, and his natural habits of extreme neatness, having reasserted themselves, was actively employed in making a most elaborate toilet. He had washed out his gutta perch of collar, thoroughly shaken out his trousers, coat, and waistcoat, and was now folding them neatly till he was ready to put them on, shaking his head sadly as he did so over the numerous rents and tears in them which had naturally resulted from our frightful journey. Then he took his boots, scrubbed them with a handful of fern, and finally rubbed them over with a piece of fat, which he had carefully saved from the Inko meat, till they looked, comparatively speaking, respectable. Having inspected them judiciously through his eyeglasses, he put them on and began a fresh operation. From a little bag he carried, he produced a pocket comb, in which was fixed a tiny looking-glass, and in this, He surveyed himself. Apparently, he was not satisfied, for he proceeded to do his hair with great care. Then came a pause, whilst he again contemplated the effect. Still, it was not satisfactory. He felt his chin, on which was now the accumulated scrub of a ten-days beard. Surely, thought I, he is not going to try and shave. But so it was. Taking the piece of fat with which he had greased his boots, he washed it carefully in the stream. Then, diving again into the bag, he brought out a little pocket-razor with a guard to it, such as are sold to people afraid of cutting themselves, or to those about to undertake a sea voyage. Then he vigorously scrubbed his face and chin with the fat, and began. But it was evidently a painful process, for he groaned very much over it, and I was convulsed with inward laughter as I watched him struggling with that stubbly beard. "'It seemed so very odd "'that a man should take the trouble "'to shave himself with a piece of fat "'in such a place "'and under such circumstances. "'At last he succeeded "'in getting the worst of the scrub "'off the right side of his face and chin "'when suddenly I, who was watching, "'became aware of a flash of light "'that passed just by his head. "'Good sprang up with a profane exclamation. "'If it had not been a safety razor, "'he would certainly have cut his throat. "'And so did I, Without the exclamation, and this was what I saw. Standing there, not more than twenty paces from where I was, and ten from good, were a group of men. They were very tall and copper colored, and some of them wore great plumes of black feathers and short cloaks of leopard skins. This was all I noticed at the moment. In front of them stood a youth of about seventeen, his hands still raised and his body bent forward in the attitude of a Grecian statue of a spear thrower. Evidently the flash of light. "'had been a weapon, and he had thrown it. "'As I looked, an older soldier-like-looking man "'stepped forward out of the group, "'and catching the youth by the arm, said something to him. "'Then they advanced upon us. "'Sir Henry, Good, and Umbopa had by this time "'seized their rifles and lifted them threateningly. "'The party of natives still came on. "'It struck me that they could not know what rifles were, "'or they would not have treated them with such contempt.' Put down your guns, I hallowed to the others, seeing that our only chance of safety lay in conciliation. They obeyed, and walking to the front, I addressed the elderly man who had checked the youth. Greeting, I said, in Zulu, not knowing what language to use. To my surprise, I was understood. Greeting, answered the man, not indeed in the sense of tongue, but in a dialect so closely allied to it not indeed in the same tongue, but in a dialect so closely allied to it that neither Umbopa nor myself had any difficulty in understanding it. Indeed, as we afterwards found out, the language spoken by this people was an old-fashioned form of the Zulu tongue, bearing about the same relationship to it that the English of Chaucer does to the English of the nineteenth century. Whence come ye? He went on. What are ye? And why are the faces of three of ye white, and the face of the fourth, as the face of our mother's sons, and he pointed to Umbopa. I looked at Umbopa as he said it, and it flashed across me that he was right. Umbopa was like the faces of the men before me, so was his great form, but I had not time to reflect on this coincidence. We are strangers and come in peace, I answered, speaking very slow so that he might understand me, and this man is our servant. Ye lie. He answered, No strangers can cross the mountains where all things die. But what do your lies matter? If ye are strangers, then ye must die, for no strangers may live in the land of the Cucuanas. It is the king's law. Prepare then to die, O strangers. I was slightly staggered at this, more especially as I saw the hands of some of the party of men steal down to their sides, where hung on each would look to me like a large and heavy knife. What does that beggar say? asked good he says we're going to be scragged I answered grimly oh lord groaned good and as was his way when perplexed put his hand to his false teeth dragging the top set down and allowing them to fly back to his jaw with a snap it was a most fortunate move for next second the dignified crowd of Cucuanas gave a simultaneous yell of horror and bolted back some yards what's up said I. It's his teeth, whispered Sir Henry excitedly. He moved them. Take them out! God, take them out! He obeyed, slipping his set of teeth into the sleeve of his flannel shirt. In another second, curiosity had overcome fear, and the men advanced, slowly. Apparently they had now forgotten their amiable intentions of doing for us. How is it, O strangers, asked the old man solemnly, that the teeth of the man "'pointing to Good, who had nothing on but a flannel shirt "'and had only half-finished his shaving, "'whose body is clothed and whose legs are bare, "'who grows hair on one side of his sickly face "'and not on the other, "'and who has one shining and transparent eye "'and teeth that move of themselves, "'coming away from the jaws "'and returning of their own will. "'Open your mouth,' I said to Good, "'who promptly curled up his lips "'and grinned at the old gentleman like an angry dog.' revealing to their astonished gaze two thin red lines of gum as utterly innocent of ivories as a newborn elephant. His audience gasped. "'Where are his teeth?' they shouted. "'With our eyes we saw them.' Turning his head slowly and with a gesture of ineffable contempt, Good swept his hand across his mouth. Then he grinned again, and lo, there were two rows of lovely teeth." The young man who had flung the knife threw himself down on the grass and gave vent to a prolonged howl of terror. And as for the old gentleman, his knees knocked together with fear. "'I see that ye are spirits,' he said falteringly. "'Did ever man born of woman have hair on one side of his face and not on the other, or a round and transparent eye, or teeth which moved and melted away and grew again? Pardon us, O my lords!' "'Here was luck indeed, and needless to say, I jumped at the chance. "'It is granted,' I said, with an imperial smile. "'Nay, ye shall know the truth. "'We come from another world, though we are men such as ye. "'We come,' I went on, "'from the biggest star that shines at night.' "'Oh, oh!' groaned the chorus of astonished Aborigines. "'Yes,' I went on, "'we do, indeed.' And I again smiled benignly as I uttered that amazing lie. We come to stay with you a little while, and bless you by our sojourn. Ye will see, O friends, that I have prepared myself by learning your language. It is so, it is so, said the chorus. Only, my lord, put in the old gentleman, thou hast learnt it very badly. I cast an indignant glance at him, and he quailed. "'Now, friends,' I continued, "'ye might think that after so long a journey "'we should find it in our hearts "'to avenge such a reception. "'Mayhap to strike cold in death "'the impious hand that, in short, "'threw a knife at the head of him "'whose teeth come and go.' "'Spare him, my lords,' "'said the old man in supplication. "'He is the king's son, "'and I am his uncle. "'If anything befalls him, "'his blood will be required at my hands.' "'Yes,' That is certainly so, put in the young man with great emphasis. You may perhaps doubt our power to avenge, I went on, heedless of this byplay. Stay, I will show you. Here, you dog and slave, addressing Umbopa in a savage tone, give me the magic tube that speaks, and I tipped a wink toward my express rifle. Umbopa rose to the occasion and with something as nearly resembling a grin as I've ever seen on his dignified face, handed me the rifle. It is here, O Lord of Lords, he said, with a deep obeisance. Now, just before I asked for the rifle, I had perceived a little springer antelope standing on a massive rock about seventy yards away and determined to risk a shot at it. Ye see that buck? I said, pointing the animal out to the party before me. "'Tell me, is it possible for man, born of woman, to kill it from here with a noise?' "'It is not possible, my lord,' answered the old man. "'Yet shall I kill it,' said I, quietly. The old man smiled. "'That, my lord, cannot do,' he said. "'I raised the rifle and covered the buck. It was a small animal, and one which might well be excused for missing, but I knew that it would not do to miss.' I drew a deep breath and slowly pressed on the trigger. The buck stood still as stone. Bang! Thud! The buck sprang into the air and fell on the rock, dead as a doornail. A groan of terror burst from the group before us. If ye want meat, I remarked coolly, go fetch that buck. The old man made a sign and one of his followers departed and presently returned bearing the springer. I noticed with satisfaction that I had hit it fairly behind the shoulder. They gathered round the poor creature's body, gazing at the bullet hole in consternation. Ye see, I said, I do not speak empty words. There was no answer. If ye yet doubt our power, I went on, let one of ye go stand upon that rock, that I may make him as this buck. None of them seemed at all inclined to take the hint, "'till at last the king's son spoke. "'It is well said. "'Do thou, my uncle, go stand upon the rock. "'It is but a buck that the magic is killed. "'Surely it cannot kill a man.' "'The old gentleman did not take the suggestion in good part. "'Indeed, he seemed hurt. "'No, no,' he ejaculated hastily. "'My old eyes have seen enough. "'These are wizards indeed. "'Let us bring them to the king.' Yet if any should wish a further proof, let him stand upon the rock, that the magic tube may speak with him. There was a most general and hasty expression of dissent. Let not good magic be wasted on our poor bodies, said one. We are satisfied. All the witchcraft of our people cannot show the like of this. It is so, remarked the old gentleman, in a tone of intense relief. Without any doubt, it is so. "'Listen, children of the stars, "'children of the shining eye "'and the movable teeth, "'who roar out in thunder "'and slay from afar. "'I am Infadus, son of Kaffa, "'once king of the Kukuwana people. "'This youth is Skraga. "'He nearly scragged me,' answered Good. "'Scraga, son of Twala, "'the great king. "'Twala, husband of a thousand wives, "'chief and lord paramount "'of the Kukuwanas, "'keeper of the great road.' terror of his enemies, student of the black arts, leader of an hundred thousand warriors, Twala the one-eyed, the black, the terrible. So, said I, superciliously, lead us then to Twala. We do not talk with low people and underlings. It is well, my lords, we will lead you, but the way is long. We are hunting three days' journey from the place of the king, but let my lords have patience and we will lead them. It is well, I said, carelessly. All time is before us, for we do not die. We are ready. Lead on. But in and thou, Skraga, beware. Play us no tricks. Make for us no snares, for before your brains of mud have thought of them, we shall know them and avenge them. The light from the transparent eye of him with the bare legs and the half-haired face shall destroy you and go through your land. "'His vanishing teeth shall fix themselves fast in you "'and eat you up, you and your wives and children. "'The magic tubes shall talk with you loudly "'and make you as sieves. "'Beware!' "'This magnificent address did not fail of its effect. "'Indeed, was hardly needed. "'So deeply were our friends already impressed with our powers. "'The old man made a deep obeisance "'and murmured the word, "'Koom, Koom, "'which I afterwards discovered was their royal salute, "'corresponding to the bay air of the Zulus, "'and turning, addressed his followers. "'These at once proceeded to lay hold of all our goods and chattels "'in order to bear them for us, excepting only the guns, which they would on no account touch. "'They even seized goods' clothes, which were, as the reader may remember, "'neatly folded up beside him. "'He at once made a dive for them, and a loud altercation ensued.' "'Let not my lord of the transparent eye "'and the melting teeth touch them,' said the old man. "'Surely his slaves shall carry the things.' "'But I want to put them on,' roared Good, in nervous English. "'Umbopa translated. "'Nay, my lord,' put in infidus. "'Would my lord cover up his beautiful white legs? "'Although he was so dark, Good had a singularly white skin. "'From the eyes of his servants?' "'Have we offended, my lord, that he should do such a thing?' "'At this point I nearly exploded with laughing, "'and meanwhile one of the men started on with the garments. "'Damn it!' roared Good. "'That black villain has got my trousers.' "'Look here, Good,' said Sir Henry. "'You have appeared in this country in a certain character, "'and you must live up to it. "'It will never do for you to put on the trousers again. Henceforth, you must live in a flannel shirt,' "'a pair of boots, and an eyeglass.' "'Yes,' I said, "'and with whiskers on one side of your face "'and not the other. "'If you change any of these things, "'they will think that we are imposters. "'I am very sorry for you, "'but seriously, you must do it. "'If once they begin to suspect us, "'our lives won't be worth a brass farthing.' "'Do you really think so?' "'said Good, gloomily. "'I do, indeed,' Your beautiful white legs and your eyeglass are now the feature of our party, and as Sir Henry says, you must live up to them. Be thankful that you've got your boots on, and that the air is warm. Good sighed and said no more, but it took him a fortnight to get accustomed to his attire. Stay, t- stay tuned next week for Chapter 8, We Enter Land. And take a moment to visit our other shows at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries, and 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, all available wherever great podcasts are found. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon.